0: Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 58, Who is Captain Grant, the Accidental Adventurer? When we last left off, Ulysses S. Grant had just taken part in the brutal Battle of Monterey, several days of bloody fighting to secure the vital strategic city. This effectively safeguarded the southern border of Texas, as long as the United States held it. As a practical matter, General Zachary Taylor had no choice but to conquer the city as the first step in the military campaign orchestrated by President Polk. But because of Polk's other priorities, Taylor had a severe shortage of the transportation necessary to advance. Furthermore, his force was, to be entirely blunt, hilariously inadequate to the task in size. With a few thousand troops, he had secured Texas against invasion defeated the Mexican army three times, and captured the largest city in northern Mexico. Yet the price for this success was sufficiently high in casualties that he agreed to a proposal that Monterey be surrendered to him rather than finally taken by force. Taylor well understood that defeated Mexican soldiers might well spread disaffection among the ranks or simply quit and go home. Also, not every man fighting him was even formerly a soldier because many had taken up arms simply to defend their home in their town. Yet allowing some of these so-called enemies to escape gathered the ire of President Polk, fast becoming fearful that Taylor would gain political standing for a string of impressive victories. So Polk came up with another plan, after first desperately trying to find a Democrat to lead it. That effort failed, and so he grudgingly appointed General Winfield Scott to command an amphibious landing against Veracruz. Polk at least authorized more of the forces and supplies that he ought to have made available to General Taylor. But he also stripped many soldiers from Taylor's army, and Taylor had very few to begin with. Lieutenant Grant was among the ranks ordered to join the coastal expedition of General Scott. Like many army professionals, he could see that the administration had grossly mistreated one of its leading soldiers. Furthermore, He could also see that General Taylor, though in the political opposition, had acted with complete loyalty to the civilian political apparatus. Indeed, Lieutenant Grant had a very close personal view of the cause of the slowdown. He had become a quartermaster to manage the mule trains made necessary by that shortage of transportation. But President Polk was not on the scene, and he did not see it. He saw events on a map, and he did not understand why General Taylor would agree to a truce, and in the end he was president. So it was that in the aftermath of the victorious Battle of Monterey, Grant and the 4th U.S. Infantry Regiment received fresh orders assigning them to the command of General Worth, and retraced their steps back towards the Gulf Coast. General Worth had garnered considerable praise for his exceptional energy and tenacity in the Battle of Monterey. His scything assaults quickly captured the high ground in the rear of the city, pressured its defenses to the breaking point, and finally delivered the fatal blows that forced the truce. Interestingly, however, Lieutenant Grant did not think too highly of the man, or at least quickly came to that opinion during the march. While he respected Worth's fighting abilities, probably no soldier in Taylor's army doubted them, Grant judged that Worth had deficiencies in his command style. Specifically, Worth rushed the soldiers at an extreme pace where it was not warranted. Speed may be of vital importance in military affairs. There are times when a commander absolutely should sacrifice everything in pursuit of speed. But that is only one very important facet of pace. The proper pacing of a military campaign includes opportunities for rest and recovery by necessity, so that soldiers can perform at their best. These soldiers had just fought a grueling three-day battle at Monterey, and now General Worth, for some notion of his own, drove them on in unnecessary haste. Grant well understood that the speed of the march made little sense, given that the shipping wasn't ready yet, so they were going to arrive at Fort Brown exhausted and then wait around restlessly for weeks. In his own words, General Worth moved his division with a rapidity that would have been commendable had he been going to the relief of a beleaguered garrison. General Worth on one occasion at least, after having made the full distance intended for the day, and after the troops were in camp and preparing their food, order tents struck and made the march that night, which had been intended for the next day. Some commanders can move troops so as to get the maximum distance out of them without fatigue, while others can wear them out in a few days without accomplishing so much. General Worth belonged to the latter class. Regardless, General Worth was in charge— and the soldiers marched, and then they reached the shores and waited. Grant spent this time writing to his fiancée, Julia Dent. Though separated by many months, he remained devoted to her. Her father, Colonel Dent, initially hoped that the time apart might separate their feelings. That didn't happen, and he seems to have eventually resigned himself to uh, seeing the two married. He and Ulysses didn't see eye-to-eye on slavery or politics, but Colonel Dent did respect Grant's devotion and profession. Characteristically, Lieutenant Grant didn't mention his courage under fire in those letters, but more expressed his desire to leave the troubling violence of war behind. He was not alone. Many of the men hoped that the war would end after Monterey, only to discover they were bound for a new campaign entirely. The volunteers had just endured that tough campaign, and many of the regulars like Grant had been separated by home or family for a year or more. Disease, as well, took its toll, in addition to Mexican swords and bullets. In time of war, disease inevitably exacted a price of human lives greater than battle wounds and had since time immemorial. Lieutenant Grant discovered this personally when General Thomas Hamer perished of dysentery in the wake of Monterey. Before leading a brigade of volunteers in the war, he had been the very congressional representative to appoint Grant to West Point, He also inadvertently gave him the name U.S. Grant in the process. Although little known today, Grant seems to have thought extremely highly of Hamer. Perhaps there was a little hero worship involved, yet he proclaimed later that he thought Thomas Hamer would have been president one day. Perhaps that might really have happened. Even the very limited wartime glory greatly accelerated Franklin Pierce's career. Before his death, Hamer, too, noted in a letter that young Lieutenant Grant held great promise of future success. He simply would not live to see how right he had been. When General Winfield Scott arrived at the camps near Matamoros, he brought a very different idea of the army with him. Grant had met Scott before the war, had seen him at West Point. That said, although Grant will take General Taylor as his role model, he learned an immense amount from the coming campaign of General Winfield Scott. If somewhat amused by Scott's habit of wearing a full-dress uniform for every occasion, he quickly came to admire Scott's proposal, a bold strategy to essentially outflank, well, Mexico. Instead of marching across the long, dry landscape south towards Mexico City, the plan would require instead aggressively cutting along the national road from Veracruz west to Mexico City that plan would require speed, careful preparation, flexibility, and unshakable courage. It would also require a great deal from quartermasters, and in particular even low-ranking lieutenants such as Grant. He did not have a great deal to do until the army reached and invested Veracruz, however, owing to the principal importance of naval shipping. Thereafter, however, he would be tested again and again, getting supplies moving alongside the soldiers. Now, fortunately, the Mexican forces in the city of Veracruz had relatively few men available to fight, and they chose not to defend the beaches. Grant, along with many others, executed an amphibious landing in Scott's purpose built craft, and they had only a few stray shots from shore to worry about. Events moved swiftly thereafter. While Lieutenant Grant occupied himself with crates and supplies, General Scott took his engineers and artillery and constructed placements to reduce the walls of Veracruz. Perhaps the scale of the American lines, which covered seven miles around the city, made a sufficient impression that the opposing commander ultimately decided to surrender. General Scott took Veracruz almost without casualties on march twenty ninth, after a three week bombardment. That might sound like a long time, but in the history of sieges that's nothing. During that time, Grant had a chance to reconnect with his old friend, Fred Dent, the brother of Julia. Lieutenant Dent had his first posting down in what was then known as the Indian Territory, today Oklahoma. This land was primarily reservations settled by tribes displaced by Americans and forced west of the Mississippi. The pair had some chances to talk, and it appears that Fred Dent approved of his sister's choice of fiancé heartily. It was something, at any rate, for the pair had... Relatively little time to talk and relax amidst all the work of getting everything on shore and settled and bombarding the city. This began Lt. Grant's real task, moving war material. Even a relatively small army, such as Scott's ten or 12,000, would require supplies measured in the millions of pounds to reach Mexico City. And that is no exaggeration. The official quartermaster's report at the time estimated requirements at 3 million pounds of material, and that was probably an underestimate. However, the army could only call upon so many wagons at all, and very few horses could be brought down from the United States. Horses, rather famously, are not known for their love of sailing. Compared to the average soldier, they have twice as hard a time getting their sea legs. More seriously, it's legitimately difficult to transport them by ship. The Americans, therefore, acquired a great many fresh horses in the field once again. And once again, Grant found himself with numerous unbroken steeds and ornery mules to manage. And that was the easy part, for even the mounts would often refuse to move supplies across miles of sand between Veracruz and solid ground. Poor infantrymen, therefore, had to drag the wagons. Several died of exhaustion in the process. This, at least, allowed the vanguard to advance into the mountains, leading to the Battle of Cerro Gordo. Lieutenant Grant did not take part in the fighting, as his unit had not come up. Yet he shared in the admiration of Scott's entire army for Robert E. Lee's courageous and masterful scouting, which allowed a crushing victory in difficult circumstances. Grant's unit rejoined the main forces at Puebla, where General Scott paused following the advance from Veracruz. Among other reasons, Scott could not control the long supply line from Veracruz with his limited forces, and still have enough soldiers to advance. He would face a constant stream of casualties and harassment from raiders and guerrillas. Therefore, he resolved to take all the reinforcements available, cut the supply lines entirely, and move on to Mexico City without a safety net, so to speak. Lieutenant Grant, among others, became critical to this effort, because it both simplified the logistics of the army, but also made the task twice as difficult. For one, the army would necessarily forage for supplies. A lot of supplies. Foraging is the age-old practice of taking food from people who very much would prefer to keep it. You can make the process much easier by paying for food, as Scott did, but Lieutenant Grant could see that the armed soldiers had to guard every supply train to keep them safe. More unusually, however, Lieutenant Grant had to somehow provide clothing for the army. Now, while clothing might not seem like the most pressing issue, the volunteers had been promised fresh uniforms and did not have them. First, they expected to receive them at New Orleans, but that never quite happened. Then the resupply was supposed to have arrived at Veracruz, but that also didn't quite happen. And now they were looking quite ragged and with shoes half-dissolved by a couple hundred miles of marching over the mountains. And when General Scott closed the supply routes, well, clothing hadn't been the top priority anyway. So Lieutenant Ulysses S. Grant, Quartermaster 4th U.S. Infantry, would adopt a most unorthodox solution. The army hired hundreds of Mexican workers to make the required articles. Now, Pueblo wasn't especially hostile, and the people locally felt rather disconnected from the Mexican government. Grant, therefore, was able to supervise an impromptu putting out system of manufactures. Before long, the Army received a tolerable supply and became as well clothed as possible under the circumstances. In fact, Grant would make a habit of small ventures during his time in the Army to meet some need of either the service or the soldiers. He was not, however, as we share going to see, an especially good businessman, or at least he was a terrible salesman. In August, The entire force, or at least those men still on their feet, struck out for Mexico City. Speaking once again to the danger of disease, General Scott left behind 2,500 men taken ill, who could not keep up. Given that he was invading the heart of Mexican power, and that even a thousand soldiers would make a significant difference in his numeric strength, this was no small decision. Yet doctors could do little, for medical knowledge had only just begun to emerge into modern scientific frameworks. Fortunately, the Americans encountered no more challenge until the outskirts of the capital, owing to deep divisions within the political structure of Mexico. Now, the direct route into the city from the east had substantial defenses, and Scott paused to look at his options. Lieutenant Grant, beginning to gain some amount of confidence, tried to provide a suggestion up the chain of command that the army could swing around to the north. He found himself surprised when General Scott instead swung around through the impossible terrain south of the city. This led to the battles of Contreras and Churubusco, where, again, the brilliant leadership of the engineers found pathways through that impossible terrain. Yet Lieutenant Grant had little to do with either of those battles. In fact, at this point, it seemed that the war might soon end, and he would return home with some amount of honor and much experience, but very little glory. Yet once again, General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana road to the rescue. Having lost battle after battle, he now played games with diplomacy until General Scott lost patience. Scott had hoped to avoid invading Mexico City itself, wishing to avoid the ugly street fighting that might result, and guessing that the political powers in Mexico would agree on that point at least. During a negotiated truce, the Americans just purchased supplies openly, and neither side made a move. But as it grew obvious that Santa Ana was stalling diplomatically while trying to prevent American resupply, Scott became suspicious. A renewed clash now appeared inevitable. On August 7th, he received a report that the Mexican army was casting new cannon in violation of the truce terms at Molino del Rey on the far western side of the city. And this time, Lieutenant Grant would take his position in the vanguard of the assault, not the rear echelon. He joined, and as an officer would partly lead, a picked force of only 500. The plan was for them to attack at dawn, surprise the defenders, and capture the site with little loss. Although, as we've seen in previous episodes, the result was an American victory, it did not go quite as well as planned. General de Santana never did lead particularly well, but he possessed a certain cleverness. Although unclear even today if the report Scout received was just a mistake... Molino del Rey made sense as a defensive point. In fact, the defenders had two cannon, and also that most valuable of military advantages, a firm plan. At dawn on August 8th, Lieutenant Grant charged with his men. They would overrun the mill itself. Characteristically, although the charge performed exactly as expected, he downplayed any heroics. Again, he declaimed any particular success, and even poked fun at himself. He reported that, Upon seeing some Mexican soldiers atop a roof, he climbed a ladder to take them prisoner. However, he discovered to his amusement that a fellow American soldier had already done so, and in his words, the mad had them surrounded all by himself. Grant found himself, however, taking possession of the officers' swords as a token of surrender. The battle would continue, clearing defenders from nearby fortifications, and then onward to the heights of Chapultepec. Yet even the cost of the initial rush had been high. In mere minutes, General Worth lost some 11 officers in the assault, a dangerously high proportion. One of the wounded was Fred Dent. Grant stopped and helped patch out his prospective brother-in-law until he felt certain the wound was not serious. It was not, and Fred Dent would recover fully. Lieutenant Grant did not fight at Chapultepec, but he did find himself involved in the follow-up action at Garita San Cosme one of the primary gates into Mexico City. While advancing towards the position, Grant and a small band of soldiers under his command found themselves under fire from a cannon. He scouted out a path and then led them forward without loss. The next day, he joined the advance again and spotted a church on the south side of the main road. Notably, it had a high belfry that overlooked the Garita. He took charge of some voltigeurs who had a mountain howitzer wits them, Now, howitzers are just short-barreled cannon, and this was essentially just a lightweight artillery piece designed to move easily through the hills and other difficult terrain. This was important, because Grant proposed to hoist it into the belfry and drop shells in the rear of the defended gateway. This he did, over the objection of a very unhappy priest. As per Grant himself, With the little Spanish then at my command, I explained to him that he might save his property by opening the door and he would certainly save himself from becoming a prisoner, for a time at least. And besides, I intended to go in whether he consented or not. He began to see his duty in the same light that I did, and opened the door, though it did not look as if it gave him special pleasure to do so. The gun was carried to the belfry and put together. We were not more than two or three hundred yards from Saint Cosme. Why they did not send out a small party and capture us, I do not know. In fact, the Mexicans had many other threats to worry about, and did not realize that the gun was something of a bluff, and that there were only a handful of American soldiers to man it. General Worth, however, noted the sudden firing from the belfry, and sent Lieutenant John C. Pemberton to summon Grant. Approving of Grant's energy, he dispatched another gun to join the first, which Grant could not make use of for lack of room. But the young lieutenant felt too abashed to say so, since he did not wish to contradict the general. In short order, the gate fell. Santa Anna fled with the remnants of his army, and the city fathers surrendered it to General Scott. It took some time to restore order between deserters, furious citizens, and thousands of convicts that Santa Anna deliberately let loose in his wake. Some of these took shots at American troops, wounding among others the lieutenant colonel of Grant's regiment, and killing a friend and fellow officer, first lieutenant Sidney Smith. In the main. The fighting was now done, and yet could not have happened soon enough. De Santa Ana would make one more weak attempt to continue the war, attacking the soldiers left behind guarding Puebla. But it was poorly managed like most of his battles, and American reinforcements easily drove him off. The last remnants of the army dissolved. Scott didn't need to lift a finger. But actually winning the peace would require many long months of occupation and negotiation. While matters were more or less safe enough, with the American army occupying the capital and nearby towns, they also could not leave until a new Mexican government formed and agreed to terms. In the aftermath, too, 2nd Lieutenant Grant received a promotion to full 1st Lieutenant, but also a brevet promotion to Captain. He took little joy in this, because he knew the sad death of Sidney Smith had opened the path. The 4th Infantry Regiment had absorbed deep losses among the officers, and they were hardly alone. The Mexican War exacted casualties amounting to 17%. Given the small size of the armies involved, this was hardly unexpected, but it was not comforting. Grant wrote to his wife following the fighting, explaining, Since my last letter, four of the hardest fought battles that the world ever witnessed have taken place, and the most astonishing victories have crowned the American arms but dearly have they paid for it. In fact, 17 of the regiment's original 21 officers had been consigned to the earth. Four of Grant's West Point classmates died as well, which may sound small, but remember that was from a mere 39 graduates that year. The aftermath, at least, was pleasant enough except for the unfortunate separation from Julia, which would amount to a three-year, very distant engagement in the end. Captain Grant managed his soldiers and kept their spirits up, in order to keep discipline sharp. Among other things, he started a small bakery with hired local labor, which surprised him with its success. He also raised funds to start a small library and get magazines for the troops. As 1847 slipped into 1848, it seemed that maybe, finally, the negotiations would get moving. Now, In his spare time, he also went over to Mexico City itself, now perfectly peaceful, and enjoyed the theater. He found, however, that he emphatically did not like the bullfighting. This makes a certain amount of sense given his distaste for red meat and harm to animals. As the weeks of occupation turned into months, he instead rode over much of the countryside and described the peoples in great cities of Mexico, writing to his family and Julia. There was a certain amount of tension with his relationship with his father, Jesse, even at so much distance. Jesse Grant had a certain knack for annoying self-promotion. Without permission, he published a personal letter Ulysses sent to his family. This was emphatically not something he ought to have done. It was self-interested and, unintentionally, revealed that Jesse had a bad habit of trying to live vicariously through his son, despite his own not inconsiderable success. Ulysses Grant, at any rate, seems to have thought that his father was trying, so to speak to borrow his honor for his own political ambitions. Finally, the very slow channels of peace worked. I made considerable political machinations, but peace anyhow. In preparation for departure, though, Captain Grant endured one of the more irritating and unpleasant episodes of his life. Though it would not define his life, at the same time it represented a sore point of honor for the next decade. On June 6, 1848, Grant, in his capacity as quartermaster, placed a $1,000 minted in silver in a locked chest in the tent of Captain John Gore. Ten days later, the entire chest got stolen, somehow. How anyone absconded with it is unclear, and to this day, no one knows whether it was an American or a Mexican who stole the trunk, nor whether they knew if the money was inside. General Worth convened a board of inquiry, which entirely cleared Grant. He could not feasibly have done better to secure the money. However, while that gave Grant cover from career consequences, due to a quirk of Army regulations, the War Department could not write off the debt. Technically, it demanded that he repay the entire sum. Now, to explain, in those days, a $1,000 was in fact a good sum. Depending on whether you convert it based on the dollar value or the precious metal value, that's equivalent today to somewhere between $40,000 to over $500,000, owing to inflation. Yet for the War Department, this was a pittance hardly worth worrying over. The final peace settlement alone obligated the federal government to pay Mexico $16 million. And the cost of fighting the war and maintaining the occupation vastly exceeded Grant's loss here. More to the point, the army pay scale made it rather improbable that a first lieutenant or captain could stand for the ostensible debt. But the obstreperous bureaucrats refused to accept the loss, even though they could hardly collect it. Grant would, in fact, spend the next ten years and more forlornly attempting to get them to waive it. In their defense, they were doing what the law on its face required. Regardless, the 4th Infantry returned to Veracruz and stepped onto the boats, finally returning to American soil with the laurels of victory on July 23rd. Grant asked for and received an immediate two-month leave, and then immediately rushed back to Missouri to see Julia, traveling around 700 miles in five days. After three years, they finally reunited in person. And, well, their love had not diminished in the slightest. A month later, on August 22nd, they married in the Dent family home of Whitehaven. After long struggles at war over the sea, the clever hero Ulysses returned to his bride, who remained faithful despite the many attentions of other suitors, and it seemed that all would be well indeed. There were, however, two small thorns to the rose. First, Jesse Grant refused to attend the wedding of his own son. The dents were slave owners, and Jesse Grant self-righteously sneered at them and would not even make peace for one day. And even for abolitionists, this was remarkably willful obstinance. Second, Julia, finally ready to live life away from her family, actually burst out in tears when the thought of, well, leaving became so much more real. Of course, she had been away from home for education and for travel, but It's hardly unusual that someone so attached to home and family might feel an awful wrenching at leaving it behind. Captain Grant and his wife expected to first go to the newly assigned post at distant Detroit, then but a small city with few amenities compared to bustling St. Louis, and uh, it was a long enough journey in those days. Her father, Colonel Den, proposed that Julia stay at Whitehaven, and Grant just come down to the family home when he could get away on leave. That said, Whatever her reservations, Julia would not hear of it, though she would visit home often. Ulysses S. Grant was not quite ready to leave the army, though he had indeed given it some serious thought. As a brevet captain in the aftermath of the Mexican-American War, however, he now made a tolerable salary. Besides, it seemed that he might well have some opportunities for further promotion in the near future. As a point of clarification, While we will refer to him as captain during this episode, the Brevet ranks from the war ended at some point. However, within a few years, they were reactivated, and many made permanent again as Congress began to realize the expanded frontier would require an expanded military to go with it. Once he arrived at Detroit, however, Grant received an unpleasant surprise. While the 4th Infantry would make Detroit its headquarters, for whatever reason they had a detachment posted at Sackett's Harbor. The commander, Colonel William Whistler, had not fought in Mexico, and this became unfortunately important. He assumed that Grant was just another officer to be assigned at will. But Grant still held the post of regimental quartermaster, and had not surrendered it, nor had he been asked to. For the time being, he would go to Sackett's Harbor, but in a sign of his newfound confidence, upon arriving, he filed a formal written protest. The department commander, Major General Wool, would have to adjudicate the matter. This might have been no great problem, except that Sackett's Harbor lay in New York, on the far side of Lake Erie, and then on the far side of Lake Ontario. The only reason the army kept a barracks there was that the Navy had a shipyard nearby. However, the site was relatively isolated and located some distance away from the major rivers. And since the lakes had begun to freeze, the Grants had to go overland the whole way, Now, the official decision from General Wool came down quickly in Captain Grant's favor, but because of the frigid winter weather, he could not return to Detroit until the spring thaw. Now, as it happened, they found the barracks pleasant enough, cozy and sociable in a domestic way. In the spring, they did return to Detroit and rented a home there, costing a quarter of his annual pay, and the pair settled into married life. Apart from a lack of civic entertainment, Detroit was comfortable enough The city grew rapidly in those days, doubling in size from around 20,000 to forty over the next 10 years. The Grants attended dances, but among his other quirks, Ulysses did not dance. Ever. Julia did, cheerfully, and it seems that Ulysses did not attend them merely with a scowl and begrudging tolerance, but he would not dance. He raced horses and he played checkers, but he did not dance. Most of the dancers also drank, but Captain Grant did not do that either. Actually, it seems that he never had. For whatever reason, he rarely, if ever, touched the stuff in the Academy or in Mexico. This is at least moderately unusual, as sneaking a drink seems to have been something the cadets at West Point took perverse pride in. Also, frankly, most soldiers appear to have taken to the bottle more than once after months or years on campaign and away from home. Quite often they had little else to do. In any case... The Grants joined a Methodist church in Detroit, and the Methodists were at the very least adjacent to the temperance movement, then a growing factor in American culture and politics. Temperance advocates urged avoidance of strong drink and liquor, although at this time many still partook of weaker beer or wine. They generally viewed that alcohol and mortal decay ran hand in hand. For a Captain Grant, office duties held little appeal. While he now liked the role of quartermaster, the mundane tedium of peacetime rendered it altogether too simple. He was not managing wagon trains and getting the badly needed food and coffee into the soldiers' hands at the right time. He was filing papers, and he did not much care for it. But the Grants would not stay in Detroit for very long, with its dances and liquor and its churches and paperwork. Julia discovered she was with child in the fall of 1849, and traveled back to Whitehaven for a more comfortable pregnancy. She gave birth to a healthy boy, Frederick Dent Grant, in May of 1850. Presumably he was overjoyed, but he was also thinking about some obstacles to a happy family life. The following spring, the 4th Infantry would relocate to its new headquarters, at Sackett's Harbor. The proud, though probably somewhat exhausted mother, would soon come to join her husband in very upstate New York. In fact, Ulysses S. Grant, became something of a leaguer in the local temperance society in Sackett's Harbor. Some recalled that he signed the temperance pledge with a T after his name, indicating that he was a teetotaler, or total abstinence from alcohol. He urged the same on many of his fellow soldiers, warning them of the dangers of drink. However, the young couple stayed at the Madison Barracks in Sackett's Harbor for only another year. With the sudden gold rush in California the 4th Infantry received notice that they would be moved out to the Pacific coast. This was an adventure of an entirely new sort. The challenge and excitement greatly appealed to Captain Grant, and he had developed a slight taste for adventure. Yet he also worried about his wife and young son. The road to California, whether by land or by sea, was a frighteningly long one for a plantation bell and a year-old child. Captain Grant had dived into the adventure of marriage without entirely thinking through the consequences. Now he had responsibilities, and he was uncertain about his path in life. And there we should close for today, with the hero Ulysses now looking at a fresh adventure. Yet his path, from here on out, will be more difficult than ever. He will endure more than he thought possible. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.